It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. Lots to talk about. Of course, we'll get through all the uh, security news and then answer some questions. How secure is the new Type-C connector? Is it susceptible to bad USB? Steve has a good idea. Something that could make him a million dollars, but he's going to give it to you for free next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Twit's annual audience survey, and we want to hear from you. Please visit twit.tv slash survey and let us know what you think. It only takes a few minutes, and your anonymous feedback will help us make Twit even better. We thank you so much for your continued support. Twit.tv slash survey. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 499, recorded Tuesday, March 17th, 2015. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 208. Security Now is brought to you by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for IT operations and developers to ensure that the right engineers are notified at the right time. Increase your uptime and sign up for a 14-day free trial at pagerduty.com slash twit. And by IT Pro TV. A good IT pro is always learning, and IT Pro TV is the resource to keep your IT skills and knowledge up to date. IT Pro TV offers engaging courses streamed to your Roku, Chromecast, computer, or mobile device. For a free seven day trial and 30% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. And by Citrix Go to Assist, the number one global market leader in remote support. Sign up today for a 30 day free trial. And if you purchase an annual plan in the U.S. or Canada before March 31st, 2015, you'll get a free Samsung Galaxy Tab 4. Visit gotoassist.com to get started. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your privacy and all that stuff online. And there's never been a better time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. He's our protector-in-chief. Hello, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you on our regularly scheduled Tuesday. You sound and better. I, Are you all better? Are you I, feeling good? I, we're just, just sort of in the mopping up phases of that uh, last week's disaster. Yeah, I, uh, as I mentioned then, I hadn't been sick in, well, I have never been sick on a podcast, and I don't think I've been sick in 10 years. So wow. it was, uh, it was uh, you know, I guess it was something you have to go through every so often as these viruses. It's funny, too, because I had various friends wanting to, like, just get together and hang out and i said no 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 not until i am absolutely sure that this thing is dead and gone it, you know it exists to try to reproduce and live that's what a virus is is a you know it's a life form trying to perpetuate itself and this one stops here <laughs> yeah there was a science fiction novel i read oh i wish i could remember who it was that's exactly what he he's talking about his parents who got replicated out of existence by another life form of virus. Oh, I wish I could remember. Anyway, yeah, that's kind of what it is. If you think of it that way, it is. It's another life form. You might be thinking of, uh, what, what was his name, Pachat? Um, I think it was a, a, a David, I mean, a, a Larry Niven novel. Might have been a Larry Niven. I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. Yeah, and we don't 
understand the life cycle of this species until the very end. It's one of the things I loved about Niven's books, and um, and it's that they they really surprise you. You you're you feel like you're engaged, and you're walking wa- you're watching the plot, and you know what's happening. But there's a whole big meteor about to drop on you. I love that, that kind I mean, of. I love that. Where you just don't, you're completely blindsided. Yeah. You do not see it coming. Now, that kind of book doesn't read a second time as well because, you right. know, it really does depend upon you being being fully informed yet completely unaware of something crucial. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, and I don't think that Lair, I, I, I don't think that um, Jerry does that. He has that when he co-authors with with Niven. Oh, maybe it's but, a Niven thing, huh? But I think it's a Niven thing because in 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 some in some of Larry Niven's own books, um, uh, he does that, uh, and they and I see it when they do it together, but not in Jerry's soul work. Love so, plot twists. I just love them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have um, sort of an interesting week of stuff. Not huge, catastrophic end is you know skies falling news, but you know good stuff to talk about. Uh, there's a new nasty crypto thing now making itself known called Tesla Crypt. Uh, I want to talk about the Yahoo announcement at South by Southwest on Sunday of the, uh, their move to eliminate passwords. Uh, then there's a, there was a big scurry because if you didn't really understand the problem, you could easily say Komodo does it again. But and that's why I said uh, kind of. Um, and then the instant cryptor guys who I introduced a couple of weeks ago as sort of a teachable moment where they were doing a web-based encryption but had really missed something important. Um, they found out, tried again, but still haven't got it right oh. yet. Oh, so no. we have more <laughs> teachability. Oh. Uh, and then a great we have, we have a Q&A this week. So 10 questions, uh, comments, and answers from our listeners. Good show ahead. And uh, as often as the case, our show today is brought to you by our friends at PagerDuty.com. Don't hate the pager, hate the game, they say. <laughs> I love that. PagerDuty is actually all about, for those of you who are on PagerDuty, making it work better, decreasing the noise, but increasing your actionability, your operations, your performance. There's a good word for it. It's an operations performance platform. That delivers visibility and actionable intelligence to help increase the uptime of your apps, your servers, your websites, your databases. What does that mean? Well, if if you're in a business where the software has to run, the services have to be going, the ser- you know the web server has to be up. PagerDuty is an essential tool. You probably already know about being on PagerDuty, having that beeper or that smartphone at all times, so that you can respond quickly. PagerDuty becomes the hub of your operations and makes it so much better. It connects all your systems into a single view. You can see uh, critical events across all your monitoring tools. So you add Nagios or Zendesk or HipChat or New Relic. We use New Relic. Amazon Web Services, Datadog as an example. Or roll your own. PagerDuty's got, of course, a full API, App Dynamics. Decrease your resolution time. When an incident occurs, PagerDuty notifies the right team the right member based upon on-call schedules, personalized alerting preferences. And it's smart, too, because if an alert isn't responded to, PagerDuty automatically escalates issues to another team member until it is, until it's fixed. Dispatch alerts by automated phone calls. doesn't have to be a pager these days. 
SMS, email, push notifications, resolve incidents on the go so you can live your life even if you are on call. And by the way, decrease the noise. Incidents are automatically filtered and de-duped. So only actionable alerts are delivered and they're only delivered once or as many times as necessary, but they're not over-delivered. And their analytics tools will help you identify common problems, allowing you to proactively make system improvements and prevent future outages. A lot of companies use PagerDuty, Instagram, Netflix, companies that can't be down, Airbnb, Harvard, Microsoft, Evernote. I want you to try it, and we've got a good deal for you. Get the right engineer on the right problem at the right time. Visit pagerduty.com slash twit to sign up for a free 14-day trial. And for as little as $19 a month, you can increase your uptime with PagerDuty. That's what Boeing does. That's what GitHub does and Nike and Pinterest and Box. And when you sign up for a new account, you'll also get that great free T-shirt, the don't hate the pager, hate the game. <laughs> I'd love to have that. <laughs> PagerDuty.com slash twit. We thank them so much for their support and for... And I know a lot of our listeners are on PagerDuty or on call, and I'm sure they're going to love PagerDuty. The news. That'll kick things off. So can off. you bring up the uh, our picture of the week? Yes, I can. This is, the, this, the, this is a capture of the screen which someone is presented when they've been unlucky enough to get Tesla Crypt installed. Uh, <laughs> um, this is like or, a crypto know. locker kind of, but for a specific... Well, it okay. So it is. It's like it's in very. It's very much like CryptoLocker. In fact, it even borrows a little bit on the CryptoLocker brand by using a CryptoLocker.lnk link, which it leaves on your desktop. Even though oh, that's uh, the guy, the, the guys, yeah, it's weird. Uh, sort of like they want to trade on the brand. The guys at Sophos have noted that the code is completely different. So in no way is this CryptoLocker. Oh. But what strikes me when I'm looking at this is how professional-looking this has become. The first crypto locker was that annoying neon red amateurish sort of... It looked like it was just sort of thrown together at the last minute. This thing's got Tesla crypt in, a, in barcode across the top, and that's actually a legitimate barcode. Wow. So they took the time wow. to actually do... To do, wow. you'll, if, you, if you notice, the barcode above the T at the front and the back are the same. Um, no other letters in there repeat, so you can't you can't verify that further. But and 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 let me look at it. It's and what I love is just how cheeky this thing is. It says <laughs> all your by, oh by the way, all your important files are encrypted. It's like what? And then very clean looking text. Your Bitcoin address for payment is like this, and. Uh, at the moment, the cost for private key for decrypting your files will be 1.5 BTC, and they handily convert it into U.S. dollars. It's about 415 U.S. dollars at this point in March, and they uh, and so they they can accept payment for to do to you know to give you the benefit of their decryption of the files that they just stole from you, essentially, uh, either by Bitcoin. Or by something called PaySafe card or UCash, although the cost for using either of those two, the non-Bitcoin choice, is higher. It's four hundred pounds, which is around six hundred dollars U.S. at this point. And as a final teaser, sort of as a as a proof that they really can do this, they will decrypt one file for you 
to to prove they can. So you could like, oh my God. And then when you sort of settle down and you think, okay, well, what one file must I really have? And they don't decrypt it on your system because that would subject their private key to capture. Instead, you upload the file to them. They use your private key, which only they have, to decrypt the file and then allow you to download it again in order to, in order to verify that they're able to do that. So this is what we predicted on this podcast the first instant that CryptoLocker came out, the first one, because it was making too much money. Oh, and I, I, I should also say that it says here and here, parent verification may take up to 12 hours. And similarly, there is a time limit on your ability to do this. So basically, they've, they've, they're moving forward with this model of encrypt your files because it makes, well, basically it makes money. It, it, they've taken something away from you in a way that you can pay to get it back. And unfortunately, many people do. What's different about this this latest version, this te- te- Tesla crypt, although brand new code, so not apparently related to the uh, to the others, is that as like the others, it will seek out photos, financial spreadsheets, office documents, and so forth. But in addition, it seeks out files related to dozens of games, including saved games, configurations, maps, and replays. It, it targets, knows how valuable those are to some people. Exactly. Yeah. You have a major first-person investment in that yep. stuff. Yep. So it targets Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Days, Minecraft, Fallout, and Diablo, wow. as well as configuration files for Steam, which is, of course, the online gaming platform. Um, and also, maybe because of the time of year, uh, looks for files related to tax returns and personal finance, such as Intuit's uh, Quicken software and uh, iTunes stuff. And it can now extend its reach into devices and drives connected by any means. Um, And it will encrypt the files out on those too. USB drives, network file shares, cloud storage folders, and other connected storage devices. So, you know, this is, I mean, this was foreseeable when we first saw the first one. And what was so troubling was that these guys had done the crypto right so that it was pay them or, or, or hopefully fall back on a backup and, and, and recover from the, the, the point of backup, essentially. But um, so this is, you know, the predictable evolution of, of this concept of encrypting your files. I, I think, unfortunately, Not surprising. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it isn't. Exactly. It's the way of the future. <laughs> Did you see uh, Triangulation yesterday? Because we had a guy named Mark Goodman on. It was great. I missed it. Yeah, it's about, he called, the book is called Future Crimes, but he's a former LAPD uh, street cop who, <laughs> it's a great story. In a 95, his sergeant said, hey, Goodman, do you know how to start spell check on WordPerfect? He said, yeah, it's Control F2. He said, Good. You're hired. You're on our forensics team. <laughs> he was like, well, you know something about computers anyway. But he became a forensics guy, worked for the Secret Service, the FBI, Interpol. And uh, he. This it's a really compelling book because he's talking about how uh, these guys, this isn't, this isn't some teenage hacker in Bulgaria anymore. Right, right. He says they're like startups. They have health plans. They have HR. They have, you know, they recruit. Um, you get a job, and that's why it's starting to look like this. They probably have actually designers working there 
uh, because there's so much money in it. So these things and are run like startups. You can imagine them in some on some foreign soil saying, oh, let's get the money of those rich Americans. Yeah. I mean, for them, it's just sport. It's like, why not? Well, it does, it does raise this issue, and he says this too. He says, you know, uh, I, I feel like if you're young and, and, and you're smart and you're a math major or a computer science guy and, or gal and, you, uh, and you, you're thinking about what to do, I would hope you would have, you know, some altruism, maybe want to do public service, maybe want to help law enforcement fight these guys. But unfortunately, there's so much money in being a bad yeah. guy yeah. And I worry that maybe we've raised a generation that's not immoral, but just kind of amoral. And that they're going, well, you know, it's a good job. <laughs> it's a good gig. I'll do it. Yeah. Hey, I, you know, I had my resume. I floated it around there. Nobody would hire me. So, the, but except these guys would. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm doing it. Well, and he says we need about, uh, what was it, a million new cyber experts in law enforcement next year. I mean, then there's just nobody. They, they can't hire enough people anymore. No. Yeah. You would like it because no. he, he recommended, he's a listener, and he recommended uh, all the things we talk about. He has a protocol. In fact, you can go to truecrimes.com and read it. And you'll, you'll completely recognize it's called Update, which is what everybody should do. He says the best model for this is not to fight fire with fire, but in fact, kind of treat it like a public health issue with kind of an epidemiological uh, foundation. Have people protect themselves, do the right thing. You know, uh, mm -hmm. update their software. Don't run as administrator. All the stuff we've been talking about for, for years. The only thing I disagree with is one thing. He says, turn off your router when you're not using it or unplug the Ethernet cable because that reduces your attack service by that mm. many hours. I don't think that's... Technically, but yeah, it's not. No. That. But no, everything I else... I have mine on right. right now. That was true. Yeah. Well, I mean, like when yeah. you go to bed, unplug. But, but you would never do that because you've got services running all the time. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to help you much anyway. But yeah, I, I, I sort of agree. It's funny too because immediately I jumped to the, in this idea of the epidemiological model that people, yeah, you know, really they don't get involved because they feel like they don't really understand right. their their computer, and On they the feel like hand, hey, it's just me, and we have to emphasize that if you don't get vaccines. It's everybody who suffers from it. It's a societal problem. If you don't protect yourself, your computer becomes part of the problem. Right. And what I was going to say was that that from a from a health standpoint, I'm increasingly in touch with how actually the model is the same on health. Yeah. People don't understand their own body, don't right. really know what they should do. They get conflicting advice and suggestions from everyone, so they just sort of tune out. It's like, eh, well, I'll just have some, you know, exactly. chips and not, I, that doesn't seem to hurt me immediately. We so, should get you on the radio show more, maybe, and, and do kind of this for real people stuff, you know, for non-geek. I, I, I mean, as you noted, it's becoming increasingly important. Yeah. Well, let's talk because I would love to get you on maybe uh, the radio show every few weeks and talk Good. about it. Yep. So uh, Yahoo announced at South by Southwest on Sunday that they have decided to make the option of no passwords. This so, cracked me up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm really curious what you think of this. Well, they are one time only passwords, right? What What I like about this is that listeners to the podcast have already have all of the information that we need in order to like parse this to understand it we we were it's funny because i'm seeing 
people in the press talk about something you know and something you have. And I'm thinking, you know, did they get that from us? Because, I mean, we've been talking about this stuff for years, you know, not quite a decade, I think. But, you know, those were the terms, you know, that we introduced for this notion of multi-factor authentication. And, And what Yahoo has done is, I mean, they do have multi-factor authentication, but and they have traditional single-factor username and password where it's something you know. What they've now done is created a different single-factor authentication, which is not something you know, but something you have. In other words, they're, what they're promoting is that if you elect to flip your Yahoo account in in this direction, then then when you want to log in, you do not give it a username and password. I guess you have to give it a username. It has to know where to send the the one-time password. So you just must give it a username. And to a device which you have pre-registered with your account, it then sends a, and they call it an on-demand password, is like their new term for that. It's like, okay, so they own a little chunk of rather useless intellectual property. Um, but the idea is that it then sends your phone via SMS, exactly the kind of thing we've always been talking about, some sort of never-to-be-repeated string. You enter that into the in, into this login screen, and it says, oh, okay, fine, you're authenticated. And so Yahoo is, of course, billing this as that wasn't a password that you had to remember. You now no longer have to remember anything. Isn't that wonderful? And... The reaction has been well, uh, largely from from the from the security community. Everybody's in favor of innovating on authentication. Of course, I've been spending the last eighteen months innovating on authentication, and it's it's funny because I see in I got so many people tweeting. I, I I was cc'd, you know, with with mentions in people tweeting to Yahoo or anybody else in the press who dared mention this about Squirrel. It's like, yeah, 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 well, no, <laughs> it'll, it'll happen if it's going to happen. It's not yet ready to be shown. But um, uh, so in general, people are happy with the notion of, of innovation. Um, but a great chunk of the security community is made uncomfortable by the fact that now you don't need something you know. It's only something you have. Or rather, it's only something you are sent. And that's a crucial difference. It's not actually something you have. They're billing it not as something you know, but something you have. It's not. It's something you are sent. So so that distinction is the Achilles heel of this, as many people have noted, because it's an SMS message. And one of the number one things that that malware does when it can in a mobile platform is capture SMS messages that are received by the phone and send them back out. So um, it just, it makes people uncomfortable that, that Yahoo has like almost out of frustration with the problems they're having, done something different, but with a different set of problems. And mark my words, we will see this thing defeated. I mean, it's not like they've come up with something super secure. No, the, it's the less reason, secure, right? Yeah, the, 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 yeah, exactly. The reason Squirrel is special is that it is an online transaction. The, the server 
challenges your device to prove it's I prove a secret that only it has, and it responds to the challenge. There's this hasn't has nothing like that. So that if somebody intercepted this token going to your phone and entered it themselves, they're logged in as you. And that's easy to um, do. I think. I mean, SMS yeah, that's, is not that's, very secure. Exactly. It's it's a very weak, low security. Um, you know, messaging system really never designed for authentication. Right. It was designed for, you know, hey, I'll be five minutes late. Well, it's fine for second factor, but this is one, yes. this isn't second factor. And I think that's kind yes. of, to me, it feels like Yahoo's trying to trick people into thinking, oh, this is like second factor. It's more safe when in fact it's much less safe. Right. Because you are, you are not needing to provide anything you know. And in fact, this would be something which in a in a situation where you might be coerced to log in, you can't you can't say I'm not going to give you my password to the authorities. They they put you in front of a screen, put, um, type your name in to Yahoo and your phone sends them the key they need to log in as you. And you I just, at all. As, as just ex- as one example of a problem. They that don't the they don't need has. you at all. They need your phone. They Correct. can type in your name. <laughs> they don't need Correct. you. Correct. And so so um, the challenge in designing something that is easier to use is we do want a device that can stand in for the user. And and that's why I don't keep to be, you know, I don't mean to keep coming back to squirrel, but till this thing is, is out of my brain, it's where I'm living. But so that's why squirrel prompts you every single time for only once for your full password, but then it re-encrypts the first N characters, and you can decide how how large N is. But and it keeps that in RAM. It never writes it anywhere. So every single time, every single time that you want to log in, you just get a little a little dialogue to confirm the serv- the name of the server where you're logging in, and you type click 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 click. Just like the first four characters of your password, and you're done. It's not like people are logging in two times a minute. I mean, you know, when you think about it, you're not really authenticating that often. But, but, uh, and, and the key is you miss that once, and it wipes it out of RAM. So now you have to provide your full password again. So it, 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 it's a, you know, I worked to come up with a, a, a secure compromise where it wouldn't get in your way, yet it really, it truly would be a way for you to authenticate the device to then stand in for you, which is, you know, the, the power we're giving devices in, in this sort of a loop like Yahoo has implemented. But even in this day and age, it's just like, eh, we'll just send you an SMS. Good luck. We should point out you don't have to use this, right? It's opt-in. Correct. Correct. And, and they do have two-factor authentication. So the problem is, as you said, Leo, people aren't going to understand the the danger. They're going to go, "Oh, this is new. This has just been announced. This must, you know, Yahoo must have figured out something to make this safe." It's like, yeah, right. You know, your authorities get your, your the authorities get your phone, and they're now able to log you in to Yahoo um, if you choose this option. I don't I, think I, they even I, need I, your phone because can't they do a pen register and just get your text? Uh, exactly. You are able, you are able to pull past messages received. That really is a pretty straightforward mm. process. Although 
I'm, I'm sure that it has a short lifetime and right. a single use function right. so that you're only able, I, I hope it has those features, so that it would expire right. and immediately expires uh, when you use it. Somebody makes an excellent point, though. If, you're, if the system you use has some form of SMS password recovery, that would be no less, no more secure than this if that worked to recover the password with just a text message. Yeah, uh, that's that right. is a good point. Yeah. If you say I don't, oh shoot, I, I don't remember my password. My password would you send me a text? Yeah, we got to get rid of passwords. We really do. We do. We do. Yeah, we do. It's just a bad system. So, um, the, the, this article, um, th this whole issue of the live dot fi um, certificate that got loose. Microsoft's all in a froth now, and they're sending out special notices, and everyone's running around. I just I, I have some technology. I'm pointing to it on the screen here, um, which monitors Chrome's CRL sets, which is, of course, you know, the very controversial, very weak um, revocation mechanism that Chrome now has. We went over this in depth because and I got into it with Google, of course, when I realized how worthless this was. But the one thing they do is at the very top of that file are hard coded revoked certificates. And I'm somewhat dubiously proud to be number five in the list. Oh, wow. For my, well, for my revoked, remember, <laughs> right. revoked.grc.com, uh, um, they, so they added me manually when people said, oh, look, Chrome has a bug. And so they, you know, took me out. And it's like, okay, fine. And so I changed my certificate. And now I'm back again, and they never changed their header. So that revoked certificate that I'm no longer using is still revoked. And I maybe it's always going to be there. I don't know, but I'm no longer revoked because I'm I'm uh, I just changed my cert. But anyway, for the longest time, and it had eight entries. This morning, about an hour ago, ninth popped up, and I got a notification from the monitor. Hey, the uh, the blocked they call it blocked SPKIs uh, changed, and there's a number nine, and this must be the certificate that is everyone's running around like crazy about. So here's the story, though. This is really not Komodo's fault. Any certificate service could have made this mistake. And it's really not the certificates. So my point is it's not the CA's fault in any way. And it's, I'll also note, just as an aside, I was a little surprised when I was doing some background research. Komodo is running around flapping their wings uh, because of as of February 17th, I think the blog post of the founder said they are now the number one certificate provider on the Internet. What? Wow. For the first time in hi it, historically for 20 years, it had been VeriSign. Right. And of course, VeriSign, they, they were the certificate provider. Symantec purchased them some years ago. Um, and But you still get to them at verisign.com. They had always been number one. They, are not, they had been tied, and now Komodo has passed them by as the number one certificate provider on the Internet, which, you know, I don't think says anything in particularly useful about them. I, I, they're the last provider I would use for a certificate because, I mean, for example, they're the, they're the, the superfish people also um, in all of the, the No, 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 Komodia. they don't do... Uh... Komodia, they do something similar. They use Komodia in one of their things. Not Superfish, though. Correct. Oh, okay, right. Komodo right. does what is I forgot what it's called, but they have a equally horrible. That's that's you're right. Program. Good. Yeah. Okay, so here's the problem. When you go to any certificate provider, 
um, certificate authority and say, I want a cert for my, for my site. They say, okay, you need to prove you're in control of that domain. So what does that mean? How could you do that? For example, um, they can give you some text which you put on a certain page like they'll like I've seen this they'll 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 or they'll give you a a crazy looking page name some you know grid looking thing just gibberish dot html and say put this on your route and let us know when you have and so then their automation will go check for that page on that domain and if it's there it proves you're somebody who has control of the web server of that domain. And so they go, okay, you proved it. So we'll give you a certificate in order to add uh, TLS, uh, you know, HTTPS um, encryption to that site. But if you'd rather, you could just use email. They say, just um, make sure that you're able to receive email from admin administrator postmaster, hostmaster, or webmaster at domain, whatever your domain is, dot whatever. And so, you know, these are the traditional um, webmaster or domain master sort of admin accounts. Admin, administrator, postmaster, hostmaster, and webmaster. Those are the options that Komodo offers, although all of the CAs offer variations on that. So, just because this guy in Finland was curious, he thought um, he, he had a, a, an account with, with Microsoft's live service. In this case, it was live.fi. So he's, and, and the email service allowed you to set up aliases. And he said, huh, what if I try to set up an alias for Hostmaster? Oh. And it let him. So he then became able to receive email sent to Hostmaster. That's that's all this was. Wow. And then he goes to Komodo because, you know, they're hey, now number one. I'm the Hostmaster. Like, and he says, I'd like to have a certificate, an SSL domain certificate for live.fi. And they go, okay, yeah, we do that. Uh, prove that you're in control. And, he, and they say, what email would you like us to send your authentication challenge to? And he said, uh, let's use Hostmaster at live.fi. Email came in. He clicked the link in Whoa. the email. They said, yay, you qualify. Uh, give us your 25 bucks and we'll send you a certificate. That's what this was. Oh and any other God. CA would have done it. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, so the mistake, is Microsoft at fault for letting uh, you create a hostmaster address? Well, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, shouldn't do that. So the real problem is that, and and I love uh, Dan Gooden wrote wrote a, a, has written a number of pieces about this in in ours in ours Technica, and I one line that I liked in his most recent note, he said, "The ease in obtaining such certificates." And the difficulty in killing them off once they're issued are potent reminders of the continued insecurity of one of the Internet's most important security mechanisms. And, and so the real fault right. is that 
Revocation. It is that easy. Yeah. It is that authentication of domain control is as weak as it is. As weak as receiving an email to one of a number of preset accounts. Now, what this means is, of course, to protect themselves, everybody who has an email system where it where users can create aliases or their own um, accounts absolutely must block all possible common names that any CA might use. That's the problem. There's no standard. Komodo, I have never seen admin before, you know, or really, or even administrator. They just made those up. But postmaster, certainly. Hostmaster, okay. Webmaster, yes. But administrator or admin? So the problem is this particular CA added a couple. And, but so to be secure against the, how trivially easy it is to authenticate via email, you'd have to make sure that you, the domain controller, um, went around and looked at every policy of every CA, and I mean that includes the Hong Kong Post Office, and make sure that that you have pr- blocked anyone acquiring any of those email addresses. Because if you don't, someone can, and they will prove to the system that that um, that they own it, and off they go. Unbelievable. <laughs> now, Windows eight. And on has added an automatic updater for revoked certificates. It is available but not installed by default for Vista and 7 and also the server side versions of that, server 2008 and server 2008 R2. So I have a note here, I have a link in the show notes to the automatic updater. If you're using 8 or later, you're already covered. Um, if you're not, that is, if you're on Seven or Vista, it's probably worth adding this. It's a it's a little lightweight gizmo, a little service that runs in the background, which will uh, then from 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 now on automatically um, allow Microsoft to revoke any certs of this sort that happen. You know, this doesn't happen often. There's you know, there's a grand total of nine, and I'm one of them on <laughs> Chrome on Chrome's bad guy list. So. It's not like there are a lot of these, but um, when they happen, they tend to panic a lot of people. And, and of course, everyone ran around. Even though this one guy had the cert, he could have said, hey, look, I didn't give it to anybody. Here, you know, I'll, I'll shred it. And, oh, my God, no. <laughs> and so everybody's, you know, all the browsers now have to scramble around and, and make sure that they don't, you know, that this didn't actually somehow get out and go somewhere else. When it was this easy to do all along, which is, again, the wake-up call for this whole system. Note that none of this works for EV. That is, it only works for domain. On the, on the other hand, the problem is that, that having a redundant domain certificate is fine. That is, you, the, 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 the live.fi might have been protected, probably is, by a, a legitimate Microsoft extended validation cert. But that doesn't mean that the domain cert isn't just as good because that's, that's, that level of, of verification is all you're asserting. And as we've said on this podcast before, it ain't much. And this story just goes to prove it. Wow. Okay, now, 
Instant Cryptor. These are the guys. It's uh, www.instantcryptor.com. And you'll find a new little blurb on their page acknowledging um, indirectly our coverage of this a couple weeks ago. Remember that that screenshot, I, I had a picture of a of Notepad Leo a couple weeks ago where it was just all full of crazy Chinese characters because oh, yeah. I had decrypted with a different password and Instant Cryptor wasn't verifying the password in any way, which meant that if you, if you misentered it, you got gibberish back. And I said, eh, you know, what that means is all they're doing is hashing the password to create a key and using the key with um, AES and uh, cipher blockchaining to encrypt the file, which is fine and all, but it's really not the way it ought to be. You, for one thing, you're not, dete- you're not able to detect any modification to the file, which you'd really like to have. What is necessary, I explained, was known as authenticated encryption, where you're both authenticating and encrypting, and there are a number of ways to do that. Um, so yesterday, I saw a tweet from CloudRail, who are the guys behind this? And they said at SGGRC, thanks for your feedback about Instant Cryptor. We've updated it according to your advice to make it even more secure. Any feedback? And unfortunately, here comes the feedback. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> you asked. Um, yeah. And uh, I also found in my mailbag when I was doing the, the pulling the Q&A uh, questions together, an email It's that the that subject was feedback on instantcryptor.com from Mannheim, Germany. And the email read, hello, Steve. One of your listeners who calls himself Advait from India has made us aware that you've discussed instant cryptor in your podcast. I'm the main developer behind this product and was eager to learn of your opinion. In fact, we've modified the encryption procedure such that now the plain text plus a hash value of that very plain text is input for AES CBC encryption, which allows us to check upon decryption if the password used was correct and if the message has been modified, except it doesn't. I'd be happy... Uh, Florian goes on, to get feedback from your side and could provide you with more details. Feel free to contact me under the uh, mentioned email address. Okay, so what they did was they, it was another good effort. But this is another, you know, the, the underlying lesson here is stop trying to invent cryptography. That is, we're done with that phase. As I have said often, there's nothing more. There, there may be more bits and then, you know, every decade or two, we get some major breakthrough the way we got elliptic curve after RSA, you know, but that was a long time ago. And now it's only now beginning to roll out. And the, the ways we put these pieces, the, the way the blocks are assembled, that's all done now too. But these guys sort of did another ad hoc solution which it turns out is wrong so so what they do is you upload or i'm sorry not upload because this all happens in your browser you point your browser at the file you wish to encrypt what they were doing was simply encrypting it and then sending it up to the cloud now they're doing an sha256 that is they're doing a digital signature of the file 
sticking that on the end of the file, then encrypting the blob. And that's what they send up. And their, their, their logic was, and their logic was correct, but unfortunately not thorough, is that when they brought the blob back down into your browser and you gave it a password, it would use that password to decrypt the blob, which should return the original plain text and the, two, the SHA-256, which is uh, 256 bits or 32 bytes, tacked onto the end. Then if they, if they run SHA-256 again on all but the last 32 bytes, they should wind up with the same result as those last 32 bytes. That is to say that that, that hash of the preceding file, the digest, should match. And it's certainly the case that if you entered the password wrong, that is, if you used a different password, you would get gibberish, and there's absolutely no chance that a hash of that gibberish would hash to the gibberish, the different gibberish, at the end. So this does detect... um, it. I mean, be careful with this, because there's so much it doesn't detect. It does detect a different key used to decrypt. It turns out, though, that solid as we would think this is, there are well-known ways to fool it. If, if it were possible to get the user to upload something malicious, for example, um, it's possible to, to, to insert that malicious different stuff into this one with and, and have it go undetected that is there are there are well understood means in the crypto world for for circumventing this solution and i knew that was the case but i thought okay i i need a, somehow i need a need something i can explain clearly so i i shot a note off to a friend of the podcast taylor hornby who's aka fire xware who has his site diffuse.ca D-E-F-U-S-E dot C-A. Um, and I said, hey, Taylor, um, here's the situation. I brought him quickly up to speed. He was a few episodes behind, so he hadn't run across this yet. Um, and I told him, I said, I, I'm, I'm looking for the, like the, succinct, the succinctest way of explaining how this is wrong. And so he said, the quick answer is that it's well known how to forge messages under this scheme. That is where you hash with a you use an unkeyed hash and then you encrypt right? and that's part of the problem here is that SHA-256 is not a, is not keyed so bad guys and that that you kind of you can intuitively get it that that anyone who wanted the hash to balance can make the hash balance by changing the the changing the 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 uh cryptographic content and and then rebalancing the hash, and it's it the math behind this is makes your eyes crossed. But the this is nothing for the cipher guru people; they're able to pull this off. So he said the attack is pretty neat. It's explained in the second part of this answer. Then he p- provided me a link to StackExchange.com, um, where some of this sort of math is shown. Um, and he said um, the more complete answer is that today the burden of being called secure 
is to have been proven secure in what's known formally. Because the other thing that's neat about, about cryptography now is this is all, all this stuff has moved into formal academic land. So he, it's called an indistinguishability slash non-malleability model. And there's, there, there's even a, some like symbology for this. It's, it's IND-CCA2. And then he provides a Wikipedia link to ciphertext indistinguishability. And he says the dominant attitude today, and here's the real takeaway. The dominant attitude today is that instead of finding and fixing individual problems, we just outright, I'm sorry, we just outright refuse to accept anything that isn't proven IND hyphen CCA2 secure. And that's this indistinguishability under adaptive chosen ciphertext attack. That's what this is that's what this approach is still victim to. He says that's the important lesson. You can't iterate on crypto design by fixing problems that come up. You have to start with something proven secure and we have things that are proven secure and and he also he ended by saying the telegram messenger is another example of ignoring this lesson because again they just sort of made something up and so the way to do this right and i will forward this text to florian since he was kind enough to write to me and tweet me and, and provide this content for the show is the only way to do this and you've also heard me say this, is encrypt then hash. That is, encrypt then authenticate. That's a, that, this is the problem that SSL made back in the early days. Um, so you, you in, so to, for these guys to do this right, they would encrypt the message under a key derived from the user's password. Then they HMAC... And, and and that's a keyed, you know, it it, it it's a the HMAC is a hashed a hashed message authentication code where you give it a key, and and the the point is there's no way for the bad guys to know what that key is. The key you derive also from the password from the user's password. Maybe just run, you know, they're they're going to run the password through SHA two fifty six. Just run it through SHA two fifty six again in order to create a key which you use for the HMAC. So then you. You, you key this HMAC, and that produces a SHA-256-esque hash, which, you then, which is the authentication code that you tack on the end. So the result is no bigger than it, was, than it is right now in what these guys are doing. Yet, because you've, you've encrypted first, and you've authenticated that encrypted result with a keyed HMAC using a different key than the encryption key, that is utterly tamper-proof. And then when you receive the blob, the first thing you do, because the last thing you did when you were generating it was to authenticate, the first thing you do when you're, you're going to decrypt it is authenticate that there was no change to what you've received, and then you use the, the, um, the key from the password to decrypt the file. So, and if, if everyone would just do that, it's, this is what I meant when I said this problem has been solved. If you do that, if you encrypt, then authenticate with a, with, with a keyed hash, then you get what, what Taylor explains is this um, crazy, um, 
indistinguishability under adaptive chosen ciphertext attack proof solution. And I will mention, this is me speaking, not Taylor, um, that he consults. Uh, he loves auditing people's crypto. That's, I mean, he really enjoys it. So, uh, Florian, if you're hearing this, uh, I, will, I will mention this in my note to you that follows. But uh, it's diffuse.ca, D-E-F-U-S-E.ca. And Taylor would, I'm sure, love to help. He did dig into your code a little bit and confirm the things that I had said. So uh, he's already up to speed. He's a good man. Now, because we've talked so much about the Large Hadron Collider and that particle fabulous, fever, particle fever, fab, fabulous movie, Particle Fever, I just thought Which I would know. Free on Netflix now, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Is it really? Oh, fantastic! And everybody, if you ha- if you are a Netflix subscriber and you have not yet seen Particle Fever, please, 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 you will. You know, this is the one I talked about a year ago where I came out of the theater and and the elderly friend of mine who I went with and I simultaneously said that's the best five bucks I ever spent. I mean, because it you know it's a little small art theater and it, they weren't asking for a ton of money and it was a matinee and it's five bucks and wow, I mean it was really interesting. Anyway. With that lead-in, they are in the middle after having been down for two years for refitting and beefing up, essentially. They are in the careful process now of bringing the LHC back online at the highest power level it has ever operated. It was running at 8 TeV. That's trillion electron volts. Oh, it sounds like na- a lot. I know. <laughs> And they're adding five to that. So they will be at 13 TeV. Now, 8 TeV, essentially the, the, the level at which this operates, that is the, 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 the power at which this runs, determines their, their ability, essentially how much they can see. And, and they were able to prove the existence of the famous Higgs boson two years ago. And in 2013, Higgs, Peter, who was still around, uh, shared the Nobel Prize for its discovery. Uh, after, although Nobel waited until it actually had been discovered. But he, you know, he, he, he hypothesized, he said, there has to be this thing here even though no one had ever seen one. He says, it's got to be there. Well, it took them smashing stuff together, photons, at 8 trillion electron volts in order to finally see the Higgs boson. Now they're going to 13 because what they want to find is some, something that surprises them. So far, the standard model is holding up. But there's this, you know, there still remains questions. What's up with this dark matter, you know, that most of the universe seems to be made of, but we can't find it anywhere? And, you know, which is to say the model says there must be dark matter in the same way that the model said there must be the Higgs boson. Well, they found that, but they haven't found the dark matter yet. Um, But maybe that means there's a glitch in the model. Who knows? Uh, The model is the most successful thing uh, that that physics has ever created. It's done so much, the the, the so-called standard model. Anyway, what they're they're hoping is that that essentially it's like they're turning up the resolution on their scope. They're going from 18 trillion electron volts to 13, and they don't know what they're going to find, but they hope some stuff they cannot explain. Because it will then be the, up to them to explain it. 
And in doing so, they're going to learn something. So far, they've managed to prove something and demonstrate that this crazy experiment, you know, is bearing fruit, which I just think is so very cool. Well, not fruit, but bosons anyway. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. Let's see. There's a... Uh, no, the, the, well, I was thinking, I was wondering if there are any fruit names in there. Because we have Charm, and we've got, you know, all the quirks have, like, these yeah. weird designations. Spin so magical. and Charm and so forth. Yeah. I don't think we have bananas and pears. And, <laughs> I don't think so. And, I don't think Let so. Me, can, uh, did, so it was, it is, like, accepted that they confirmed that the boson exists. That's not a question. Yes. All right. Yes. Yeah, they did. Um, and, and Peter got his Nobel. And yeah, I guess did. you get a Nobel Prize. That's confirmation enough. Yeah. Yeah. Do you? Okay, uh, so I, I was going to say something to, about Barack and the Peace Prize, but I thought, no, 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 no please. <laughs> you before you get to spin right, I know you want to do that, but a um, couple of questions I had for you, and maybe something we yeah. can talk about it down the road, or maybe it's in the questions. Actually, I haven't looked at the questions. Google's new OAuth uh, uh, solution. Some people in the chat room are asking about that. Didn't know there was one. All right. So I don't either. So we'll have to look into that. And then uh, we've talked about bad USB before. And a number of people oh, have raised it, this issue. It is, it is in the questions. Okay, we'll get to it. it yes. Good. All right. Yes. The, I was raving about the MacBook last week and how, you know, about this one connector. And it really, what we're going to need, I'll just, I'll give people a tease. We're going to need a condom. <laughs> okay. I have a snugglet. Will that do? Oh, well. I don't know. All right, yeah, we're gonna need a we're gonna need a USB charging condom, which we'll discuss here in a minute. Oh, that's in a good the meantime. Idea. Yeah. In the meantime, spin right. Uh, just as a little quickie in the in the keeping with the spirit of the Q and A, uh, Brandon asked from Wisconsin. Uh, he said, "Spin right GPT slash EFI slash UEFI." He said, "I'm a longtime listener and user of your products. It all started for me with Shields Up." And I've been wondering about your future ideas for Spinrite. I know that you've been that you're rewriting it for much faster speeds and all sorts of wonderful features we've heard about. But I don't believe anyone's brought up the compatibility side of things. Are you planning on updating Spinrite to work with GPT formatted drives? That's the GUID partition table, as opposed to the so-called MBR, the master boot record format, drives that Spinrite 6 doesn't agree with because they are MBR followed by EFI. And are you planning on adding you EFI boot support? So I just thought I'd be explicit since I guess I hadn't mentioned it before. Yes, uh, Spinrite's full support for the Mac, among other things, requires that. And even later model PCs with Windows, uh, what, I think at least seven, certainly eight, and beyond, uh, we've all everything's moved to UEFI booting rather than the old style BIOS, um, and to drives using this GPT because they've got much larger fields. The problem with the old master boot record format is that it had a a partition size limit of 32 bits worth of sectors. And 32 bits worth of sectors, that's, of course, it's once upon a time seemed like, you know, we're never going to get there, 4.3 billion. Um, but 4.3 billion times 512 bytes per is about 2.2 terabytes. And we now know that there are partitions bigger than that. So drives have, have drives and OSs and everybody have, have been forced into a format that allows greater than 32-bit descriptors which is what the GPT does. And so 
Spinrite will be 100% aware of all of that stuff uh, and be able to run on drives of uh, probably it's safe to say now any size, although I have said that before and been wrong. So it's a little bit like Gates saying no one will ever need more than 640K of RAM because, no, that was 10 times what the Apple II had, and surely that's enough. It's got to be plenty. Yeah. Got to be enough. Uh, we got questions. And I know you have answers. Before we do that, though, can I mention our folks at IT Pro TV? We love these guys, Tim and Don. In fact, I think they're going to they're going to be in town soon. We're going to get together, have a beer, talk about old times back in the early days of IT Pro TV <laughs> last year when they were just getting started. They had come to a NAB panel I did a few years ago with the, the uh, TriCaster guys, and they said, "Hey, you know, they were already IT trainers." They said, we should do what Leo's doing with Twit, but we should do it for IT training. And IT Pro TV was born. Now, here we are a year later. They've grown so uh, fast. Not only, uh, you know, sign up tons of students because it really works, but also add so many courses. And they do it just like we do, live. So you can chat with them. You can interact. It's fun to watch. And you will be learning things like, IT Fundamentals or A-plus certs or Security Plus, Microsoft's Windows certifications, Cisco's certifications, the new ISC Squared Security certifications. Hey, you know, you want to learn to be a certified ethical hacker? IT Pro TV has just announced that Sean Philip Oriano is their subject matter expert for the CEH. That's their most requested course to date. He's an expert in a lot of areas of security. He, they know you listen to this show for security, and they know you'd probably be interested in getting that certified ethical hacker cert. Well, guess what? Get ready, because they'll be streaming the shows live beginning Monday from 9 to 4 Eastern through Friday, April 3rd, for two weeks. And you're invited to attend for free. IT Pro TV's live stream is available to everyone. You do need to set up a free basic account. So join them for two weeks of certified ethical hacking with Sean Philip Oriano. He has taught for both enterprise and military clients. This is a great subject. I want to do this. I wish I could take those two weeks off. I'd love to get this cert or just learn the stuff. Streamed live and on demand worldwide. They've got Roku, Chromecast, your computer or mobile device. If you subscribe for a year, IT Pro TV will let you download the files, put them wherever you uh, Want to go so you can go offline? They've got courses in Office. They've got courses in Project Management, VMware, technical skills. They're really growing like crazy. PowerShell. Look, here's an email encryption course using uh, uh, OpenPGP. Holy cow. I love this. Clients are all over. HP, UCSD, Stanford, MIT. There's corporate and group pricing. You get the, with your uh, subscription... And I'll tell you how much that costs. It's not much. You also get the Measure Up Practice Exams. That's worth 79 bucks. A virtual machine sandbox lab environment you can use with any HTML5 browser. So you can set up your own Windows server and clients. You get interaction with the host via chat. I, the on-air stuff is so cool. It's like what we do. It's just neat. There's a live stream SMS. So you'll get a text message when it's time. This is so great. Now, let me tell you, it costs... Well, there's a basic account that's free, lets you watch live on the web and on Roku. There's a premium account that's $57 a month, 
or you can buy the annual, $570 a year. But I've got a really good deal for you. If you visit itpro.tv slash security now, you can get a seven-day free trial. And using the offer code SN30, you'll also get 30% off, not for the first month or year, but forever, for the lifetime of your account. Now we're talking less than 40 bucks a month. SN30 is the uh, offer code at itpro.tv slash security now. And if if nothing else, sign up for that free account and and study for the Certified Ethical Hacker Cert. Which is, I would just love to learn this stuff. From uh, Sean Philip Oriano, you got to do this. itpro.tv slash security now. And don't forget, if you decide to sign up, SN30 will save you 30% off for the life of your account. What I don't even know what's in this Certified Ethical Hacker stuff. It just sounds like that would be so cool to yeah. take that course. I don't know exactly. Well, we need ethical we need ethical hackers. So. Yeah. Well, we need 1 million um, new ethical hackers next year for law enforcement alone. Yeah, I think that's what's so neat about the forensic side of this is basically you're you you get to have as much fun as right. the hacker, but but it's like mysteries <laughs> right. that you're solving of how this stuff got in and and, and what happened and and, and so that. forth. Yeah. Um two things uh, while you were uh, reading that, I, I ch- just checked my Twitter feed, and Simon uh, Zarafa uh, sent a note saying that the Axion, A-X-I-O-N, apparently is a candidate for the dark matter particle. Ah. There's a Wikipedia entry. It says the Axion is a hypothetical elementary particle postulated by the uh, Pecky-Quinn theory in 77 to resolve the strong CP problem we all know about that <laughs> in quantum chromodynamics. <laughs> oh, mm. I hate those quantum chromodynamic hate problems, directly when there's strong CP. Oh, yeah. If axions exist, and it's, at least they gave it a good name, and have low mass within a specific range, they are of interest as a possible component of cold dark matter. So, and this thing goes on and on, on. So I have, I mean, this, whoa. But, you know, good. <laughs> Whatever that is. Sounds important. Um, That's all I could say. Yeah. Sounds like 18 and, trillion electrovolts might not be enough. We need more if power. I, if, I, if I add seven to today's date, the 17th, I get March 24th, which yes. is strikes me as the last day that voting is open for the <laughs> podcast awards. Well, get in there. It's not so too late. So that means that this is the second to the last podcast in which I'll ever be able to annoy and remind <laughs> and bother people that I would love to win for best technical Come podcast. On, Let's get him in um, there. And it is necessary, by the way, to check your verification email if you haven't because um, it um, uh, they are sending out verification emails in order to make sure that... Um, you, you know, like you exa- you're not like making up a new email address every time. So you have to click a link in the verification email in order to to prove that uh, you're legitimate. Just, I found one in, yeah. in in my own. Have that so. sent to hostmaster at live.fi, <laughs> and we'll make sure to. Yep. Count your. And somebody vote. at Microsoft will happily click on that. But you can. You. So is that eliminate the vote often thing? You have to, or you? No, can, they you still, still want you to often. come back and vote more, okay. and they say you can do it every day. 
And so some people have been really neat. They've been tweeting reminders out to the <laughs> people who are awesome. following SGGRC. So I really appreciate if that. If you I don't have, win this, we're, we failed. We have failed and in I'll, every if, way yeah, possible. I, one way or the other, I'll never mention it again, e- either in humiliation <laughs> or in glory. <laughs> okay, good. Ready? Question one has arrived. <laughs> Message for you, sir. Winfield, a listener in the U.S., one wonders about freezing his credit. The cold, dark heart of his axion. I just listened to your piece on freezing credit reports. I'm curious what your opinion is on services uh, such as LifeLock, LifeLock.com. Also, and I have an opinion which I will share with you about that. Also, wouldn't freezing one credit reporting bureau be enough instead of all of three? If you freeze one and have an issue with others, doesn't the one that's frozen prove to the others they're incorrect? If only... Yeah. I've not had an issue, but certainly do worry about the potentials. Thanks for the terrific, terrific show and information. So um, we'll get the life lock in a second. I wanted to say that, the way, unfortunately, the way the bureaus operate is... is independently. Sort of dis- <laughs> independently. Yeah. And an, a credit-granting organization normally has a relationship with only one. So, for example, a bank or you're a car dealer or... A loan shark or whoever I don't know. Um, you know they'll they'll like they'll be have an account with Experian or right. with uh, TransUnion, and th- so they always go to TransUnion in order to check someone's credit. That's what they do. So uh, unfortunately, it sounds like Winfield is hoping to sort of like cheap out his solution by only freezing one and spending ten dollars, or or at least in California, rather than three and spending thirty dollars total. Um, but unfortunately, you really do need to lock them all. So tell, tell us about LifeLock, Leo. So i actually been a LifeLock customer for years. And in fact, I bought it for my kids, too, because a, a kind of worst-case scenario on identity theft is that your kids' socials get compromised because that's a lifetime. Right. Yes. And uh, and so I did it. We're for both. so old; it doesn't really matter. That yeah. Much right. At us. this point, I don't well, need good we're not, credit. We're not. We're not buying that much. I don't need, need good credit that. as much as you know. They have a lifetime ahead of them of credit yep. that they're going to need. Uh, LifeLock is sometimes controversial. I don't think it's controversial. I'll explain where the controversy uh, comes from. In the uh, old days, right? Because yeah. they, I think they 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 overstated what they they were doing. And I they don't got think they did. So here's oh. what happened. They what they were. What they chiefly did was would they would put fraud uh, fraud alerts on your accounts was one of the things they would do immediately, and Experian and Equifax and TransUnion didn't like that so much because if there's a fraud uh, alert on your account, they can't issue credit cards. You won't get those f- you know credit card offers in the mail, and that's a big uh, revenue source for the for the credit unions. Wait, I can stop those offers by putting a fraud alert on my account? Absolutely. Ooh, 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 ooh. That's so so thing. they used to do it so. Uh, the credit unions, I think, in my opinion, and uh, there's some evidence for this, but it's you know it's murky because nobody's nobody's saying what happened. But in my opinion, the credit unions, and we, we we've seen this happen in other cases, uh, ganged up on and got uh, states' attorney generals to sue LifeLock okay. um, yep. for mostly for, and the FTC for for uh, over for exactly what you said, overstating oh, oh, their yeah. capabilities. Oh, I don't think right. they did. However, they got enough judgments against them that they have – and I know this because they've, they've been an advertiser on the radio show in the past. And I think – no, we never had them on the podcast. Uh, but I happily endorsed them because I know they work. 
but they have gotten so gun shy they can't say anything anymore. So their their ads are use, are are horrible. I keep telling them, guys, you this is nobody's going to buy this product because you, can, you they cannot tell you what they do because of these their wrists are tied by these various judgments. Wow. So what they've wow. done, which I think is fantastic, they bought one of the biggest, if not the biggest back-end providers for credit cards that does the analytics that credit card companies use to detect fraud. Credit card companies use this company that LifeLock owns to do fraud detection. Right. So as a result, LifeLock has jacked into the, the flow of credit card transactions from almost every everybody, basically. And so they notify you in the same way that they notify Visa and MasterCard. Ah, saying, if somebody's applying. Saying, we know what's going on. Because they can no longer put the fraud alerts on. They were stopped. Uh, and so, but they do other things. They do analytics that I think are, you know, really very, very valuable. Um, it's controversial. It's not cheap. And I think, you know, one complaint is, well, I don't want to spend all that much money. And I would understand that. Um, and it is a, it, it is an annual fee. It's right? an annual fee. Um, I do it because I'm a public figure, and so pre presumptively it may be more of a target, target than others. Yep. So I've it has a by the way I've never had a problem, uh, and I found them to be very very good. Uh, they will do other things. You're you're also buying insurance to help you if you do get identity fraud and things like that. Um, but I believe that they in fact do exactly what they say they do. In fact, they do more because they've been they've been hogtied by these judgments against them. Uh, so they can't really tell you what they do. I keep saying, you got guys, you got to tell people about this. We can't. <laughs> it's like, but this is great. We can't. So I, really, they became an enemy. In my opinion, what happened is they became an enemy of the credit unions, uh, the credit reporting, not credit unions, the credit reporting agencies. Right. And right. because they were effective, in, in fact. And yeah. so uh, they, you know, I think, uh, let's put it this way. I use it. I can't prove that I need it, but I've never had a problem. Uh, they've been very quick. I check, and is it all like forty nine bucks a year? That kind of thing. Yeah, maybe more than that because I have the kids involved. It's not. It's not a huge amount. Maybe it's one hundred fifty with the kids. I can't remember exactly. Now you can log in. You can see a lot of information that you wouldn't see otherwise. I feel like they they do the right things. Ten bucks a month. Somebody's saying pack rat. Um, okay, and I'm I'm not sure I would recommend that for everybody. Uh, if right. you're willing to take the time to pay attention, you get your credit. You can get an annual credit report for free. If you're ever turned down from credit, you could get that. If you you know if if you don't want to get LifeLock, do all you need to do all that. You need to get your credit report every year. You need to check. You need to be proactive. You need to have the great time calling the credit unions, uh, credit reporting uh. agencies. They've automated that now. There's no human, um, and it's not a very it's not a very pleasant process. So. Uh, if you can do a credit freeze, do it. But they really don't want to do it because it costs them money, in effect. Yeah. If you've had problems, though, you can get it. So LifeLock Ultimate is thirty dollars a month. The base package is ten dollars a month. I think I did. The, I think I, I'm doing it all. I can't remember though exactly what I'm doing. Why are we not surprised? Well, Ultimate. At least you're not doing the gold watch. So you know. No. No, but I feel like <laughs> I, I. I feel like I am a. Tar I could be a target, and so. No, I agree. I, yeah. There's certain things I do that I. Um, I, I do that don't necessarily recommend everybody do, and that's well, and and your nature is to be very open and and oh, yeah, you know, just sort of forth, forthright yes. and oh I was here's on where this I show am that and... I accidentally flashed my Amex card on the screen, yeah, 
That worked yeah, out. I, well. I, I never tell anyone I'm going to be out of town until yeah. I got until I get back, and then I say I was. It's yeah. just you know s- s- standard standard security protocol. Yeah, I think if you do the freezes, it ends up costing you so much money that you might as well just do lifelock. Frankly, but, well, I, I did. I froze all three for ten dollars each, and I'm really happy for that how I long did that. though? Like every three months, you have to do that. No, it's ever. Period. You really? pay it once. You pay it once, and you're locked and, until no, you need to unlock it. That's good. Yeah, I, 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 for me, that's the perfect solution. At my, my, at my point in life, I'm not buying anything that I need credit for. I don't want anyone messing with my credit, so I just locked all three of them. Yeah. It's, it's a one-time payment of $10 in it's California. A, it, var- it varies by state. It's the kind of thing that we can do because we don't get – you know, we're not at, applying for credit cards, buying cars, buying right. houses. If right. you're doing a lot of stuff like that, <laughs> right. it's a pain. Because then you pain. need to pay. You need, you need to then do $10 for an exception to that, right. and that starts to add up. Right. Freeze lifts vary by state, and if you have to pay when you're shopping for credit, it's worth it. Okay, even if you have to pay. Just a planning issue, says Mark in our chat room. Question two. I'm glad that's a great question, by the way. We've never really addressed that, so thank you. Yep. Jesse in Easton, Maryland. Some input on HTTP two mandatory TLS. And if you listen to this show, that all makes sense. <laughs> the Packet Pushers podcast. Recently covered HTTP2, and their host mentioned that mandatory TLS and HTTP2 was removed from the spec because of concerns from ISPs. It would impact their ability to provide caching as well as well as super cookies if all web pages were encrypted. And the IETF working group had initially proposed mandatory encryption. Just want to know your thoughts on that. Love the podcast. Been fans of you and Leo since the Tech TV days and Spinrite user. For 10 years. Remember, I interviewed Vince Cerf and asked him if there's anything he would change. He's the father of the Internet. And he said the one thing we would have changed, we would have built in encryption into, yes. into all of these protocols. Yes. So yeah, uh, it would have been it would have been difficult way back then oh, because yeah. it was it was I mean, well, first of all, we're still trying to get it right today. Right. I mean, people are still like, oh, no, you can't do compression because right. there's a beast attack. And and right. if you change the if you, if you twiddle something, then we see how it compresses differently and then we can reverse engineer. I mean, it's just staggering how difficult some of these things are to get right. But I just thought it was interesting. I, I, I like this question because it was you know i made the I, I made the point of noting when we were talking about uh the evolution of speedy into http2 that 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 whereas speedy was ex, it, it was exclusively encrypted it, we lost that when we went to http2 and uh assuming that jesse knows of which he speaks and i assume he does it certainly does make sense that there are still people who are, have not given up on unencrypted web connections. ISPs would like the ability to cache in order to reduce their bandwidth. But, I mean, anybody who has that in part of their business model today, or super cookies, for example, needs to absolutely give that up. They they need to, if nothing else, plan from this moment on that, that... that connections will be opaque to them and do whatever you have to add routers, add bandwidth, but you know, plan for the idea that your customers will be connecting directly to the servers and you're not going to be able to see into it because that's the way it's going to go, whether it's in the spec or not, whether HTTP two can optionally be unencrypted. I mean, it makes sense that it should be because It'll be really fast. I mean, we, we saw that 
adding encryption and this compression and, and, and the binary protocol that is added in HTTP2 is so it makes makes the system work so well that it completely removes the overhead of encryption. So if you if you had no encryption overhead and had HTTP2 unencrypted, that would be even faster. And, you know, browsers are still going to support it. Web servers are still going to support it. So th- there'll be a place for it. But more and more websites are just going to be encrypted because users are going to want that more. So, you know, the web is going encrypted, like it or not. And I think everybody pretty much likes it, except those people who are uh, one way or another counting on it in some model not being encrypted. And that's, of course, the NSA and ISPs and Verizon who wants to put a super cookie on your <laughs> stuff on, uh, you know, as, as it heads out onto the Internet. Yeah. Uh, Kyle Day in a Dallas, Texas. <laughs> Because it's a typo. In a Dallas, it takes. You see, he wonders, Steve, how could Squirrel be used for multiple account logins to the same domain? All the Sorry, usual, <laughs> all the usual praise for you and Leo. Seriously, your podcasts are worth more than free. Well, you know they're free because we got great advertisers, so you don't have to pay for them, but they do. I have a question about your squirrel solution. I've listened to all your podcast episodes. I never quite picked up on one thing you may have already covered. How does squirrel handle logging into multiple accounts on a single domain? For example, with my current password manager, I have both my and my wife's logins saved to iCloud.com. Could be any domain, of course. Using my current password manager, I would navigate to iCloud.com, select which login, mine or my wife's, uh, that I want it to populate and log me in with. I do the same thing with uh, Google. I have several Gmail accounts. Right. I think eight. <laughs> so I get to choose. But how would Squirrel handle multiple logins to the same domain? As I understand it, the single Squirrel identity is what identifies me to the website server. Is it possible to identify as someone else or maybe a second account that I own? I have a PayPal business and a PayPal personal account, but they're both accessed to the same domain. They're both my own personal accounts. How am I going to manage multiple squirrel identities to accomplish this? Thanks, Kyle. Um, this question caught me because just in the last week, we finalized that uh, the way of doing that. Um, there are two different um, there are there are sort of two different concepts in squirrel. The what what squirrel promotes, as everyone knows, is the idea that one identity can be used potentially for your entire life. That is, you could very likely create a squirrel identity with GRC's client and export that to your iOS or your Android or your Mac or wherever, or create an identity on any of those and cross-export them. The point being, they would all have the same identity so that you would be known as the same pseudonymous um, entity at any site, no matter which one of your devices you were using. But... This is per domain. So um, so this is what Kyle is asking is, what if I want two accounts, if I, I myself, you know, my identity, want two accounts at the same domain? And what we have is a, um, it's been, we're still not sure what we're going to call it, a sub-ID or uh, an account ID or an alternate ID. The idea is that, remember I was just saying earlier that, Every single time you authenticate, you, you the first time you give it your full password, and then subsequently you can give it a shortcut. Uh, we call it the password hint. 
Um, if you and and if you did that, you just get your normal sort of primary account at that domain. If you wish to appear for any reason you have, we're not telling you how or why you want to just for some for some reason one time you want to appear to be someone else or you do want to maintain sort of formally additional accounts at the same domain. Um, there's a button on the dialog that just says account. And so you type in your shortcut, do 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 do, hit the account button, and then anything you want, you could you could number them one two three. You could you A B C. You could use your own little acronym for the second account and third account. And there's no limit. What we do is we take whatever you whatever you type in after you press the account button, and that gets added to the hash. So it creates an infinite number of alternative identities for your primary identity at that domain. So it just expands it infinitely. And I'll, I'll just mention that this is different than multiple users sharing a computer because Kyle's, Kyle's question was a little mixed up. For example, he talks about how he, his, he and his wife in the two different people mode Squirrel clients will support multiple, like, people identities. So in a household who had a shared computer, you could have mom, dad, you know, Bobby and Susie, and their client would show those four identities. And so they would choose who they are and then just normally log in under that identity. And then all of those identities, if they wish to, could have multiple accounts under them. So, I mean, it's... Yeah, we got that. That's in there too. And it's going to end up being uh, very simple and easy to use and give people complete control and freedom. Cool. And we'll just hope. We'll get it done. We'll show uh, it to the world uh, and we'll see what happens. More and more it's starting to feel like it's something that needs to have happen. I know. Um, you know, I, I mean, this, it was a year ago, but it's better now than it's better late than never. The threat to you is that somebody like Microsoft or Google or some consortium comes up with some solution. Which would not well, be as good, but it would be there, some solution. There is FIDO. FIDO, FIDO is, is yeah. you know, is that. And the problem with FIDO is they didn't know or, yeah, well, actually they didn't know. I know that they didn't know because when I ran into Brad Hill at the, at the DigiCert uh, conference, he was stunned by mm. the crypto I was using, which allows me to not require the server to keep my credential. That's what FIDO does, which is so crazy, is you... You, you give your credentials to the server to hold for you. Then when you go there, you ask for them back, and then you authenticate against them. It's like, uh, okay, I guess, uh, okay. Anyway, Squirrel doesn't need that. So, you know, which is why Brad was really impressed and said it was the most well-thought-out authentication protocol he'd ever seen. So it's certainly the case that FIDO could happen, but FIDO is device-tied, and even though it's technically an open spec only one company has ever managed to write the FIDO, to write the FIDO protocol because it is so complicated. This knock knock labs—they're the only people who have it, and they'd like to make money licensing it. And so, when you hear that, like Microsoft is going to support it under Windows 10, yeah, they licensed the code. Instead, with Squirrel, it is really—I want to say—dead simple. Except even simple turns out to be complicated. But we've got. Uh, like 12 or 13 people, I mean, there are test servers up and running and people are are, are in, in the process of following my implementation and verifying theirs against mine. So, I mean, it, it 
we'll, we'll see what happens. Somebody said, all you have to do is get Tim Cook to announce it and say it's magical and uh, you'd be done. Maybe. That would make my day. <laughs> Costas Cristalis. Critzelis in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, wonders about Rohammer. In the last episode, you discussed Rohammer, a vulnerability the researchers at Carnegie Mellon discovered, they, where they could flip a bit or bits on an adjacent row by repeatedly accessing it between refresh cycles 64 milliseconds apart. Additionally, you said the Code Zero group within Google had weaponized it. My question is this. In order to do this, would the code need to have... Would the code not need to have, would the code not heed, but I think he means need, to have direct control over the read-write operations and perhaps some level of knowledge exactly as to when the refresh cycles are to occur at the hardware chip level? That being the case, would it not be fairly difficult to take control of this, given there are multiple board chipsets and only two manufacturers, Intel and AMD, but many versions of the chipsets? Or do all chipsets basically operate pretty much the same way? cost us so i was glad to see this because we were up against a hard out last week on thursday we had a tech news tonight or tech news what do you call it, a morning one tn tnt news. tech news today today um and so i couldn't spend as much time on Rowhammer as i wanted to there are a couple points that i that as a consequence i i left out oh um first Sorry. is um well since then there's already been some news uh uh linus has uh submitted a change to Linux, which will remove that um, that visibility into an app, a non-privileged application's um, port mapping. I mentioned that last week as being crucial to this. You, the application has to have access to its own page table in order to know, know where to hammer in order to change a row. And so the, the quickest remediation for this flaw is to take that away from non-privileged, um, non-privileged processes. And that's been submitted um, into the official Linux tree. The, the other really tricky thing is exactly as Costas says, is that you, in order to hammer the row, you have to bypass... Ev- bypass everything the system has done to keep this from happening. That is, I mentioned at the beginning of of my discussion this last week, how slow dynamic RAM has remained. It just, it cannot get sped up in the same way that all of our static silicon processing has. As a consequence, processing speed has just shot past it. The only thing engineers have been able to do is caching. And of course, everyone is familiar with L1, L2, L3 cache and so forth. There's even cache in the RAM chip itself. That is, when you read a row, um, the, the, the results of that read are stored so that if you read other things from the row, it won't read them again. And rows are typically about 64 bits long in today's, in today's dynamic RAM. Um, and so, so the idea is that, that um, every single bit of caching has to be bypassed in order to hammer on the uh, chip at full speed. 
what they, the, the way they do this is there, there is an instruction that the Intel has that I'm sure AMD must. I'm trying to think whether the ARM architecture does. I think that the ARM doesn't, but Intel does. It's a non-privileged instruction. So one, one question people had was, you know, why was, uh, I think it's CF flush or C, maybe just C flush, cache flush. But so the, at the instruction level, the code running basically is in a tight loop. All it's wanting to do is to pound on the, uh, uh, on the two rows back and forth on either side of the target row. And so it does a, it does a right to, to that, to one row. Then it, or does it do a read? I can't remember. Uh, then it flushes the cache um, in order to, so, so that because what happens is normally when you are when you're reading from dynamic RAM, you bring a block, a so-called a cache line, which I, is like 64 bytes now that bring a whole chunk in at once. And so if you were I think they are reading. Um, and so if you're bouncing back and forth between doing reads, you won't be going back to the DRAM every time. You will instead be pulling it out of any of this this pipeline of caches, the L1, the L2, or the L3 cache. And and that so that'll be done very, very fastly. Um, very fastly, very, very quickly, excuse me. The reason, though, that you may sometimes need to explicitly flush the caches, that is, tell the caches to forget what they have, is if you had two processors sharing memory and though and these processors might have processes running on them that are sharing a region of memory for like sharing data so one processor might put something in the shared region the other one would read that out well before it does that it needs to flush its local caches so that it's actually reading the physical memory otherwise it'll just be reading out of cache and so you can't trust that shared region of memory as a communications mailbox unless each one at least each processor that that that, that is about to look removes any memory it has of what it saw there last. So it actually pulls it from the physical RAM. And anyway, so it's pulling it from the physical RAM is what it turns out disturbs the adjacent line or the the, the adjacent row um, in the cache. And the last part is none of this works if you have ECC or even parity check memory which is the other point I, I didn't have time to talk about last week, which is, for example, in server class machines, you will often have um, error-correcting memory specifically to absorb these kinds of problems. If a bit flips, the ECC works on a, on a different fashion, but similarly to as the way it does on a hard disk, where it's able to correct a single-bit error or reliably detect a two-bit error um, um, within that little chunk of, you know, it's like uh, eight bytes of memory that it's guarding. And, then, and, and there, there's another, an additional byte to protect that and provide the ECC data. So if you are a server class machine with ECC, you, don't nev- you never have to worry about this. And even if you just went for parity memory, um, it'll catch single bit flips as well, though it would not detect uh, two bit flips because that brings the parity back again. 
So, and, and, and the last thing I, the last point I made was that in Google's testing of, was it 24 laptops, they found that they were able to induce these errors um, in a usable fashion in half of them. And that's why I made the comment that, that you could imagine this being a part of a toolkit that an attacker would have where they would have identified which laptops were potential victims and and if they were like if their target happened to be one of those known vulnerable laptops then they could try the ram hammer attack <laughs> on it to see if they were able to to get control right half is not a very i mean that's better than nothing i guess it's not well, and uh, this is a new problem. We didn't have this more than two years ago. Right. So this is – we're introducing this new because we keep making the DRAM more dense and the cell size is smaller. And therefore, the signal is l less large compared to the noise. The so-called signal-to-noise ratio is unfortunately dropping. Mm. Sam – Abu El, Abu El Samid. And by the way, I should know your name, Sam, because I see you all the time. Sam Abu El Samid in Ypsilanti, Michigan. He says, terrorist batteries. Nothing new. <laughs> nice piece of engineering. As nice a piece of engineering as a new MacBook is, Apple did not invent the stepped battery. Motorola and LG both have used similar batteries in their phones for years. You can see it at androidcentral.com. So, Okay. Thank you. I'm, There's a lot I, of those. I, oh, you know, they didn't invent that or this. Apple doesn't, you know, Apple doesn't have to invent new stuff. It just is an interesting use of it. Well, and, and for example, th we know that they acquired the fingerprint scanner people. Right, but boy, yeah. they, they sure turned that into something far more useful no than yeah. the fingerprint yeah. scanner people yeah. ever had. You still going to get a MacBook? Oh yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah. It's just. It's. It's too nice. I, um, I'm a little. I've. Have, I'm a little worried about the keyboard. I, uh, I, I've been me reading too. reviews. Yeah. Yeah. And they say that it's a little. You know, it. That. The, the, the little. The little rocky. Not much high, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I am. I'm gonna let at Lisa get one and watch. Maybe maybe you and Lisa and watch. I think I won't pre-order one. I'll wait to go and yeah. look at it in the store. When? When? Wait. When? April, when? When will April they be 10th. in the store? They won't be in the store till the tenth. Well, nobody. I wonder if, they, if I could see. You can one play before. with the Force Trackpad now because it's in the thirteen-inch MacBook Pro. But I, don't, I think you're gonna have to wait till the tenth. I think I'm gonna love that regardless. That just sounds like a complete win. Everybody's raving about that. Yeah, the ha the haptic feedback yeah, tablet. Yeah, your trackpad. It's also a slow processor. I'm not. I'm really not sure. You can get yeah. the haptic feedback on other ones. I'm, I'm not doing 3D modeling no, or DNA true. research or anything. You know what I got? <laughs> you know what? You know what changed my attitude on all this? Um, I got the uh, new Chromebook Pixel. Yes, the Pixel Two, or the, the, the right the new the new Pixel, Pixel Two, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, two years down the road, it's much faster, snappier. Boy, what a gorgeous screen! And it and it does do everything I want. Uh, yeah. Pretty much. There's a, there's a couple things I can't do photo editing. Uh, but again, the MacBook, I might not want to do photo editing. Does Apple have their stuff on Android yet? The, like their Office suite stuff? Yep. There's web-based versions of Microsoft Office and iWork, Apple's solution. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking of Jenny. This a, might really be the right I, thing for Jenny. Boy, from a security point of view, it's incredible. First yeah. of all, it's got a TPM chip. Uh, they, they sign everything. Uh, you can't modify, you can't access many of the files. Uh, you know, the, you can't just kind of mm. browse around in the directories. It's locked down. 
Uh, and if anything bad goes wrong, they've got this power wash that just wipes it all clean. But it's not cheap now, is it? It's, it's, it's nine ninety nine. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I realized is that I, you know I've played with every Chromebook, and I by the way I hated Chromebooks. I hated the whole idea. Didn't get it until I started using them, and I'm starting to get it. And I'm seeing students <laughs> use it, and I'm starting to get it. But then what happened was a lot of the reasons I didn't like it because they were cheap hardware, and it was junky. And but if you put it on nice hardware. I use the Chromebook more than anything else now. I'm using it all the time. Well, and I think it's it makes sense for somebody who just wants to get their work done, who doesn't want to like right. live for the sake of having a computer, but just wants the computer right. to let them do what they need to do. You know, it's wild. It has SSH. So I moved my um, I moved my uh, uh, RSA key over, my private key over. Right. Uh, imported it into the SSH uh, module and deleted Client. it. Yep. And uh, and now I can SSH to a Linux box, so I've got anything I can do in a Linux box, I can do pretty snappily. Nice. Um, so I feel like, yeah, I've got everything. I've got a chat room in there. There's, there's, got... probably, there's, there's probably an open VPN client, too, I would imagine. Oh, I'm sure there is, yeah. Well, Google yeah. also has a remote access solution that you can access any computer remotely. So if I need a Mac, I could access it. I think it's getting better and better. Anyway, just, I know. I know. People are going, you're crazy, Leo. You need a real computer, a manly computer. That's actually the one thing I miss. I cannot really do programming. I can only do web-based programming. I can't really do real programming. Right. True. You know, I can SSH to a to an Emacs and run Lisp, but that, that's about it. Mike no, Robles. Then, then, I mean, your hair, your hair that has just come back would fall out. <laughs> actually, I actually like Emacs. I used to be a VI guy. I'm kind of coming around. Yeah, well, you, you know that when the when all of the texture of the left and right paren keys has been smoothed off. <laughs> you're doing Lisp. You've been doing Lisp. I love Lisp. I'm starting to come. I'm coming around on functional languages. Screw these imperative languages. Anyway, Mike Robles in Wakanda, Illinois, wonders about anti-keystroke logger protection. Steve, longtime listener, I'd like to get your opinion of something called Zamana anti-logger particularly the free version, Zamana.us. According to Zamana, the software not only protects against keyloggers, but they also claim it prevents SSL intrusion, protects SSL, prevents man-in-the-middle, and monitors fake CAs. Got good reviews. Have you looked at this? What do you think? By the way, thanks a lot for all you do to promote security awareness. Sincerely, Mike Robles. So, you know, if it could wash the dishes and my car... Um, I, I sort of tripped over this one because these are the sorts of claims which are difficult to really honor. Um, for example, you know, uh, okay, first of all, I should say I've, I've, this thing's been around for a while. This, this keystroke logger is kind of this anti-keystroke logger functionality that it professes. It's sort of funky it, because inside of Windows, there's a long chain of processing that keys go through, which is mostly a testament to the age of Windows. As one thing or another, or someone had a new good idea, they had to keep all the other previous good ideas and add this one to it. And so, as a consequence, there's about 10 different API levels where you can access keystrokes. And they're all targets for attack, where a keystroke logger could get itself. So, their claim to fame is they insert something at the very end, or I should say they insert something at each end. They put something way deep down in a driver in the kernel, close to where 
Windows is finally so tired of processing this keystroke that it gives up. And it says, fine, here it is. And way up at the front, right underneath the, the key cap itself, so that it catches it before anybody's had a chance to mess with it. And then they say they encrypt it. So there, it's like a little encrypted link from the key top down into the kernel just before, you know, like the original primal NT function gets it. And in between is gibberish. So if any of these keystroke loggers link into this chain anywhere there, they're going to get gibberish. And I, and I, I mean, this is the this is how they describe it. And I think, okay, this is gibberish. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, all the keystroke logger has to do is link in ahead of them at the top end or below them at the bottom end. It's not like they have some <laughs> privileged position. And maybe the keystroke logger isn't smart enough to do that, or maybe that's just how it operates. So the bet, the, the strongest claim you could possibly make is. We f saw a keystroke logger once that we could prevent. Okay, maybe two or three of them. I don't know. But not all of them ever. It'd be like saying, here's the antivirus solution for all the antivirus today and forever. Just install this and you're, you're good to go because we solved that problem. It's like you can't solve the keystroke logger problem. They're claiming to have done so. And then so, the, and, and this is sort of a, I don't mean to pick on these people. There's a, there's a class of these. They all sort of feel the same. It's like, you know, somehow they didn't invoke military-grade encryption anywhere in there. Um, they avoided that catchphrase. That's also typically a, a, a sign of a problem. But anyway, so Mike, maybe it's good. It just feels like more gunk in my computer, you know, something, one more thing to go wrong, sort of like Power Windows. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm just, you know, grumpy about these things that say, okay, this prevents all of these because nothing can prevent all of anything. Wow, that's a, that's a <laughs> epigram for the centuries. Maybe put that on your tombstone. Nothing, nothing can, can prevent, prevent any, everything. All of anything, yeah. <laughs> I tried, but nothing can prevent everything. Uh, here's one from Chris in Tokyo, and he's got that, you know, question I had about... USB Type-C. Steve, with bad USB and the inherently insecure nature of USB looming, what do you think of laptop manufacturers, even Apple, using USB Type-C for power? As far as I know, nothing has been done on the specification side to address security issues. Do you know anything about this? If I were a bad guy, man, I'd be planning where to offer free power to commuters, travelers, and coffee sippers looking to top off their fancy new laptop batteries. Yeah, and the industry is reacting similarly. Um, bad USB is still fresh in our mind, and we're now seeing, for example, famously the MacBook that has only a USB connector, which means you'll have to connect to USB in order to get power. And I was looking at the little, at my maglock, how it's got those four little gold dots. And it's like, oh, I miss you because <laughs> all, all you could be I is DC. Yes, oh. I do, because, you know, you're so innocent. You know, look, four little connectors. Yeah. Instead, you peer into that USB-C, and it looks like an octopus has just taken over. So well, the good um, memory is, as I, I, the good thing is, as I've been told, the Apple Power Adapter doesn't have any firmware. So you couldn't actually put bad USB on, a, on an actual a legitimate Apple adapter. The issue ah, is going see, to... Yeah, of course, and that's not the attack uh, right. The uh, the, the right. attack the attack is how many times have any of us as people uh, uh, 
propose right. ever ask to borrow somebody else's power adapter in a pinch yeah. or plug into the seat back in the airline. Right. Well, exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, or there's like, you know, power outlets, you know, all over the place now that are USB. And presumably at some point in the future, they'll be USB type C, which is why I said somebody needs to make a condom. And as soon as somebody does, let me know and How I'll tell everybody. Work? The idea would be it would be a tiny little a tiny little thing which has a, a male USB-C on one end and a female on the other. And all it has is the power wire. Oh, smart. Going between Oh, that's them. easy. Yes, it is. It's trivial. <laughs> so, someone needs to make someone. You needs could to make, make one, one yourself. You just solder it together. Of course, yep. because if there's no data, if it's just power wires. Then nothing- you're back to, oh, look. It's like my maglock. Yeah. It's my, my cute That's brilliant, thing. Steve. I wonder if somebody's selling that. If not, let's do it. Yeah, like I said, as soon as someone, now everyone knows, make a condom. As soon as someone has, I'll tell everybody. You should and do it. We'll, you should we'll call go. it the Spin Right Power Condom. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. It's be, yeah. it'd be trivial. You just need a bunch of Type-C connectors, ma- uh, uh, male, male and female. female. Yeah, because you have to have an innie as well as an Audi. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, and I mean, then just wires. It's like how many power wires done? are there? There's probably none. Yeah, we're on we're on question seven. By the time this podcast is done, there will be a project on Kickstarter. Um, <laughs> Kickstarter. And, 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 and the, the reason I'm not doing it is because everyone will, and it's really not. I mean, it's it's worth having one, but it's not worth taking the time to do it. Oh, there are man. lots of other people who can do you plastic could have and five million dollars right now in your pocket. <laughs> the USB Type C power condom. We Why need a condom. Didn't I think of that. Brilliant. How about uh, how about this? Look at that. There's already one for USB uh, Type uh, A adapters. It's ah, called Charge good. Safely. The Sync Stop. Perfect. Look at that. Protect your have data. Have them do one for. Have yeah. them do one for the next one. It's just a. They call it a USB condom. Oh man. Yeah, they've got to be <laughs> doing a Type C next, of course. No doubt. No doubt. A condom that stops Trojans. What an irony, says Wistful in the chat room. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will mention that with any... Well, first of all, your new beloved Pixel is also USB Type-C. Yes. Right? Yep. It's yep. got two so, of them. So, one on the in- so those two. One on each side, which is kind of cool because you can charge it either way. You can have video out either oh, way. Oh, that is very Isn't nice. That nice. I, I like, wish I, Apple I, done I, that. I love that the that it itself is reversible, and now it's even side to side reversible. Yeah. So, so that's double nice. And um, uh, let's hope that we're not going to run across the the firewire style problem that we that Thunderbolt also had, where you know it, it's a. a um, uh, DMA style interface. Presumably, I've not had any chance yet to look at USB. Presumably, th- th- they understand that they need to be providing some protection. But uh, again, remember that it, in, the, in the bad USB case, it was it was the the device you were plugging in that was the problem. Right. So the idea would be you would be plugging. You think you're just getting power, yet you're getting power, and there's also a drive hidden there. Which is screwing around with your you, with your computer without your knowledge and permission, which is why you need the power condom to say I want power and nothing else. Great idea. Hey, let's take a break. We got a couple more questions. Want to get to those in a second? But before we do, uh, our sponsor, Go to Assist, wants to talk to you. In fact, they want to give you a uh, tablet. How about that? Go to Assist. If you're in IT, if you're in support, you know about Go to Assist. It's the number one solution 
from remote support worldwide. It has been for six years in a row. Go to assist.com. Trying to talk to employees or customers, you know, you, you've done it, and it's the worst thing in the world. You're on the phone. Okay, click, click the start button. No, the start button. It's on the left. The start button is on the left. Okay. Now, what, what do you see? Is there a run command? There's no run command. All right. You need to go to the, the control panel, and you click the start button. It's like, oh, you don't want to do that. Wouldn't you just like to fix it yourself? You wish you could reach out and fix it yourself. You can with go to assist. You, look, your user needs urgent help. They're thrilled if you say, look, I can fix this. Just accept the request you're getting right now. You have a huge backlog of support requests, not enough staff. You can fix them fast, move on. The cloud-based, easy-to-use solution that's going to make your life easier and make your end users happy. With GoToAssist Remote Support, you can connect to any computer, any mobile device, screen share with employees or customers so you can diagnose and fix their support problems faster and more effectively. You can use the GoToAssist apps on your smartphone or your tablet to deliver support anytime, anywhere. Plus, with the new See It feature, I love this. This is so cool. People can stream their smartphone's camera to GoToAssist. So you can say... Show me, is it the back of the computer? Is it plugged in? Show me the back. <laughs> Show me the back. You can see whether something's wrong with the hardware. I love that. This is brilliant. I love GoToAssist. Use it with my mom. You can too. And now we got a great, great little premium for you. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial so you know what it's like. Go to assist.com. No contract, no credit card needed. It's just easy to get started. And as a part of their special March Madness offer, if you buy an annual plan in the U.S. or Canada before the end of the month, before March 31st, 2015, you'll get a free Samsung Galaxy Tab 4. And yes, you can use this to run Go to Assist. It'll be easier for you than ever to provide support on the go and, you know, watch your favorite college hoop action. Get started today. Go to assist.com. And take advantage of that free Samsung Galaxy Tab 4 offer. That is a great deal. Go to assist.com. Don't you love it? You can, they can, okay. Um, does, is the computer plugged in? What? I don't know. How, do you have a, uh, an audio port? I. What would that be? Okay. <laughs> take your camera phone. Show me the back of your computer. Okay. Brilliant. Uh, all right, Steve, let's see. We got a couple more questions before we wrap this puppy up here. And question number eight comes to us from John Hugan in Austin, Texas. He's wondering about TPM. We were just talking about TPM in the, uh, yep. I don't know if the original, uh, pixel had a TPM. I bet it didn't. That's awesome. Oh, it's Maybe. been around for so long. Yeah. It's just adds it may cost. Have had it. But see, that's what you right. get with it when you spend a little more like $999. Huh? You yeah. get the yeah. things like a TPM module, which means... Well, you get nice hardware. You can't really do nice. really nice hardware no. for 200 bucks. No. The screen. You know, you're going to get some green frog laptop. Yeah. Steve, I was thinking about your point that having a device that can decrypt what you want decrypted makes a lot of sense and makes a system inherently in... Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. That having a device that can decrypt what you want decrypted makes the system inherently secure because the key has to be on the system. That's what we were talking about last week. But in, in that case, why do we trust TPM to provide our security for things like whole disk encryption keys? If we conclude that TPMs aren't secure, are we using them for sheer lack of a better alternative? It stands for the Trusted Program Module. Is that right? Platform. 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 That's Platform. it. 
And so he, he asks, are we using them for sheer lack of a better alternative? Yes. Oh, really? But it yeah. is a secure so, store itself, right? I mean, you can't... Well, it's hardware. Yes. Well, yeah, but, but, but this was the point that I was making last week, was that it, in, in the same way that like a DVD player is hardware... Um, we were able to reverse engineer the keys, right. and, and and there's a fundamental problem when you are when you are relying upon a like like a local secret to be kept. the The secret is in this thing I'm holding. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, and and so all I have to do is pry it out of there. And in fact, prying it out of there is what's often done. The lids are popped on these Physically. things. Wow. Yes. And now, so I did want to mention, which I didn't before, is that because that's a, that's a known problem, things that attempt to protect their physical security are made deliberately vulnerable. For example, I, 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 I've seen systems where they use a long life battery and then run fine wires through like the air and then pot this thing in black plastic so that if you... If you're trying to like dissolve the plastic or like like uh, etch away at it or or file it away, you'll break a fine wire and it'll lose power and forget what it knows. I mean, the point is, a lot of effort has gone into the recognition that the physical security of a small piece of electronics has now become crucial, and and the key. Of the trusted platform module is very similar to um, in, to what Apple has done with the um, secure. They called Enclave. I can't remember what they called this. The, the the secure element um, in the iPhone, and that is, it will never export its secret. You can ask it to use its secret in order to prove something or to obtain decryption, but. It will never export the secret. So you give it something, it does the work, and then see and says, "Here's the result." But but you never get the actual work; only the work product. Um, so so the answer is yes. TPMs are better than I mean, as a as a local repository for secrets, which you know they're as safe as we've been able to make them, and the manufacturers of the TPMs make them literally brittle so that any attempt to tamper with them will fracture them and cause you to lose the secret that's interesting and then you'd know yeah. or if not you'd at least know or whatever so yeah, you, yeah yeah and i it's uh, i don't know if google ever said there was a tpm in the original chromebook pixel but uh tear down and reveals an infineon chip that is likely Yep, to be a TPM module. So yep. I think it yeah. is. I, it is, you know, TPM has been around so long. Yeah. yeah, it's cheap. And again, for nine ninety nine, you could do anything you want. Yep. Bubba Mustafa, Bubba Mustafa, Bubba Mustafa, who's waiting for DerbyCon five. I'm not sure what. I had no idea what that I was. I thought maybe the, you would know yeah, what the reference was. Yeah. Worried about SSL TLS hijacking proxy. Steve, after listening to the episode about Superfish and understanding that enterprises will proxy the traffic to do deep packet inspection and other security defenses, doesn't that mean the whole SSL TLS model is fundamentally broken? Can't my ISP, Big Brother, Chinese, Wookiees, whatever, pop in on one of the hops and play man in the middle? Does HSTS fix this? Granted, 
course, that's only if both sides support it. Can HSTS be proxied as well? Okay, so I, I did like the, ad, the addition of Wookiees as Wookiees. a possible Never know when target. the Wookiees are listening. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, um, I wanted to sort of just make sure we hadn't sort of gone overboard with Superfish. <laughs> the, first of all, HSTS won't fix it because all that does is force you to use encryption. So, um, that's all it does, force you to use encryption. But if the encryption itself is broken in some way... Being forced to use it, well, that doesn't matter because the encryption itself is broken. For any of this to work, your browser must trust that man in the middle. Your browser must trust that proxy. That's done in the case of Superfish because Superfish has installed itself in your computer and given it a certificate. That has given your browser, you know, remember the, the 400-some certificate authorities. Well, now there's 401. And no longer is the Hong Kong post office number one on our suspect list. Now Superfish is, is in there also. So the point is an ISP cannot use, cannot break SSL and TLS um, nor can Big Brother, well, technically, um, except I, I'm sure that the NSA can mint any certificate they want to at, at like on a whim. There, there has to be that they control a certificate authority, you know, among all, all those that the browser trusts. It has to be. Um, but not an ISP. An ISP would have to require that you load a certificate in your browser in order for them for your browser to trust them and i have mentioned that it's a it's a bit of a chill that one that isps might in some horrible future become ballsy enough to say oh yeah uh sign up for us and here's how you install our certificate in your browser so that we're able to protect your security so if that day comes, oh, that's, that's going to be a dark one. The idea that people might not have a choice but to install an ISP's certificate because what that would mean is the ISP is doing a man in the middle, maybe in order to do the kind of caching which SSL TLS prevents in order to lower their, their, um, their bandwidth. But I sure hope we never see that day. But anyway, for what it's worth, it's not easy to do this. You need to get the browser to trust the proxy. And that requires adding a certificate that the, that the proxy provides. Finally, number 10, Alan Figgins in Auckland, New Zealand, had a question about target style, security breaches, and squirrel. Steve, I've been a listener since the day you netcast episode one of Security Now, a grateful user of Shields Up since the 90s, and owner of Spinrite License since the early noughties. So a huge thank you. In episode 493, there was a question regarding Squirrel, and in particular, whether there might be a potential security issue if, well, Target, to continue using them as an example, is compromised, and their uh, Squirrel database would be exfiltrated. Your response to that query was it wouldn't really matter too much since the bad guys would only have gotten a list of users' public keys and there's no particular value to those or in those to any other person or website. I agree with that statement, but I'm wondering if there might be another security issue whereby a bad guy gets into Target's Squirrel database and rather than exfiltrating it, they replace a user's public key 
to be the matching half of a public-private key pair that they, the bad guy, have generated. Now the bad guy can log into Twitter's website using Squirrel, sign the knots with a private key that they have, which now matches the public key held by Target, giving them access to the user's account. Is that correct, or have I misunderstood how Squirrel works? Alan, you understand it perfectly well. And yes, if uh, if somebody were able to alter a database of accounts, then there is no way to prevent that. And you could argue that there's theoretically no way to prevent that. That is, any authentication system would fail that, that level of breach. And in fact, if bad guys get in, it's not really even clear to me, like that that's what they would do. Uh, it's like if they have that level of control to alter the data, the account database of some target, like Target, um, then, you know, they've got free run of the place. So, uh, so you're absolutely right. Squirrel won't protect, nor that, well, that would be like changing someone's password to something else. So now the bad guys can log in as them with a password that they have changed. Or... I mean, like any authentication system, if you change, if you change the what it is that the destination uh, service has that identifies a person as some other person, then it's going to identify the new people. Doesn't matter person. if it's a password or a squirrel. It's doesn't matter if it's anything. I mean, nothing even theoretically right. can can breach that. So, you know, the, the, there was another, the, the, this is sort of along the lines of let's explore this all the way. I mean, I'm glad to explore it all the way. We have explored that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, nothing can withstand that sort of attack. So uh, it's not, there's nothing I can do. There's, I mean, there's absolutely nothing. And so I don't consider that a problem It just or even a, characteristic of I mean it's sort of like the nature of authentication is something's identifying the the account holder and if you change that then they're going to be identified as somebody else yeah Steve we've done but, it again but, 10 questions but, yes and episode 499 <gasps> is behind us Uh-oh. here comes 500 next week you know what that means next week we're going to do something must get you a cake yeah <laughs> I don't eat cake. Set up fireworks. I'll get you a meat a, cake. It'll be all protein. Give me a carrot. Carrot. <laughs> You're easy. Uh, yeah, 500 episodes. Isn't that great? Well, yeah, I love it. 500 great episodes, I might add. I, I have, I'll have something to say next week. I'm glad yeah, you're feeling better. better. I am that's so what we're happy. Gonna do for 500. Okay, yeah. good. Kind of a special little thing. I'll have, I, have, I have some feelings. I'll eat cake. You watch. Perfect. Just don't <laughs> choke it. Just don't spit it out when you hear what I have to say. Uh-oh. It's not <laughs> no, going to be your no, last episode, is it? No. Get get some Kleenex. Oh, oh no. Uh, no, 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 no. No, no. It's not, not, not bad. Okay. <laughs> That's just how good this is. I'm glad you're feeling well. And feeling Me better. too. Yeah. Uh, we do this show, and you know, I guess you don't want to miss the next one. We do this show every uh, Tuesday. Now, uh, it's been a little confusion uh, because people say, did you start early? Well, the problem is we start daylight savings time early, saving time. These um, strange people in California. Yeah, well, the U.S., we started. Oh, wait, we daylight, we, our daylight savings time changes at a different time than other people's yeah. daylight savings? Oh, my. So they Lord. haven't gone to summertime yet in Europe. So we moved the podcast without telling them, kind of. 
We are still at the same time as far as we're concerned, which is 1 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. That's, uh, of course, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. But it is a different time. Actually, it's now 1.30, isn't it? 1.30 and 4.30 uh, Daylight Time in the U.S. Right. But it's a different time UTC because UTC does not change. If only we were UTC, it does not change. And you need to calculate the offset from UTC to your local time, and then this will all make sense. So just so you understand, we are at 2030 UTC. So you have to figure out your own offset from from now, now on until we go. We move. That's the problem. We, we did. We moved on you. Uh, and that's just blame the stupid. Blame Ben Franklin. We don't need it anymore, but uh, we, we got it. It's annoying. It's annoying. It doesn't save energy. Yeah. Uh, people die as a result of it. Heart, four heart attacks. I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> and I know I had crappy sleep. I think you got sick. Because it just changes your circadian rhythms for no reason. It doesn't save energy. Doesn't The farmers don't like it. That's a canard. Uh, there's no value to it whatsoever. The reason it doesn't save energy is it's a push. We use more air conditioning and less fuel oil or vice versa. Yep. So it's a push. So there's really no value to it. And I do predict that sometime in our lifetime, uh, this time change will end. I really I don't know. We're so. pretty old. <laughs> well, that's how optimistic <laughs> I am. Okay. <laughs> I'm just an optimist, Steve. As uh, Alex Lindsay says, I just want the sun overhead at noon. I don't care about anything else. How about sometime during this podcast? <laughs> That'd be good. Daylight savings time will change. That'd be good. That'd be good. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure. You'll find uh, 16 kilobit versions of this show, show notes, transcriptions, everything you need at Steve's site, grc.com. You'll also find Spinrite there, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and lots of freebies, and everything you need to know about Squirrel so you can implement it on your website. Uh, if you can't uh, watch live and you and you want video, we have that too. We do audio, high quality audio and video at our site, twit.tv slash sn. It is also available wherever podcasts are aggregated, including iTunes. You can get the Twit apps on almost any platform and uh, watch that way as well. Uh, thanks to our third party developers for those. Um, and, but whatever way, you don't want to miss an episode. And if you're going to miss an episode, you definitely don't want to miss next week's episode 500 of Security um, Now. Ooh, and one last week to vote in the podcast awards. Make sure you yes. vote for Steve. Podcastawards.com. Vote early, vote often and often and often. Vote all the time. You don't That's vote for any second. other show. Don't dilute your vote. Vote for There Steve. is no other show. There is no other show. There's e one show. Even the people competing with us. <laughs> In that in that section, have voted for us. There's no so. reason you shouldn't win this every year, but I guess we have to go through the motions. So please, I just vote. decided that this one I want. Then you I'm going to be I'll be quiet from now on. Well, that's kind of how I feel. It's like what well, you know, I could have it every year because we have such a devoted audience and they're very active and they participate and they're big. It's a great. Audience. There's seventy thousand people listening to this show. If each and every one of you voted every week, yeah, we'd break their web server. It'd be like. <laughs> Okay, well, let's see. Who are you in the technology? Or are you what? What category? Technology. Let's see yeah. who won technology. Let's see. Oh, here's a podcast with three hundred thousand votes. What's the next biggest <laughs> one? Oh, I guess he won. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Thanks, my friend. See you next week. See you next week for episode five hundred of Security Yay. Now. Security Now.